I'm Sharon Jacobs, an Associate Professor of Energy and Environmental Law at the University of Colorado Law School, and I'm here today in beautiful Boulder, Colorado with Victoria Mandel of the Mandel Law Firm. Vicki is an expert in energy regulation as well as privacy law. Our topic today is distributed solar energy generation, and more specifically, we'll be talking about its economic justice impact. So Vicki, thanks so much for speaking with me today. Thank you so much, Sharon, for inviting me. I appreciate the opportunity. So when most people think about the justifications for distributed solar generation, they think about environmental benefits or reliability benefits or autonomy benefits, but you've written that there actually can be economic justice benefits to going solar. Um, and you've written that low-income customers have potentially the most to gain economically from distributed solar energy. So why is that? Yes, um, it's a topic that um, I work on a lot with many different stakeholders. And the, the foundational concept in the area of equitable access to solar, distributed solar energy, is the idea of energy burden. And so um, low income households have a higher energy burden than higher income households. And energy burden is the amount of the um, household's income that is spent on energy bills. Uh, there's also within that concept or, or a term of art called energy impoverished. And that's when the um, amount or the percentage of the income that's spent on the energy bill is 10% or higher. And statistically, that number of energy impoverished households is going up. So it's important that we address this through policies in energy and environmental law and policies that take care of this problem. So when, when we say they have the most to gain, what that means is that if there's solar investment and access to ownership of solar generation, rooftop solar essentially, um, or community solar gardens, that enables that household to have a lower energy bill because the solar energy is contributing to reducing the bill. And with lower income households, if the energy bill is reduced and it's a significant portion of the income, then money is available for other fundamental needs, such as food, medicine, basic, basic needs. So what, what happens is that the investment has more foundational, has more basic value in terms of human needs than an investment in solar energy or so distributed solar for a higher income household. And that all sounds helpful, but the fact is, and correct me if I'm wrong, low-income customers often don't have access to distributed solar, at least at the same levels as higher-income customers. Is that right? Yes, yes. Policies for access to rebates for investment in solar, rooftop solar, um, have not been designed to reach the low-income customer. And so... That has resulted in significant inequities that policy really needs to um, correct. 
And so we have many states that are, that are looking at these questions right now. But when we say they don't have access to distributed solar, what that fundamentally means is that there are financial barriers. Low-income customers don't have ability to finance solar. They don't have the ability to um, make a down payment. Um, they don't have sort of sophisticated financial analysis tools available to them to analyze the pros and cons of a long-term solar investment. So ultimately, <clears throat> what, what what's, needs to happen and what has happened um, is that rebates for rooftop solar are specifically directed to the low-income customer and the low-income household, and those rebates are higher. And um, and they and frequently, what we've learned over time is that when the rebates are directed to low-income qualified customers of the utility, it's good to combine um, those programs with other co-benefits, such as job training, energy efficiency investments are especially beneficial with solar rooftop rebates. Now, this is great. And before we get too far into the solutions, I want to ask you about one more aspect of the problem here, um, and that's this cross-subsidy issue. So if we could just move to that for a minute. You argue that there's, there is a cross-subsidy problem here in addition to uh, an access problem or a financial access problem. Can you unpack that idea a little bit? Low-income customers in most states pay for renewable energy investments. They pay for wind, they pay for solar, and they pay for rooftop solar investments. They pay through their bills as well as everybody else. And so what has happened is that, you know, we have had this, this strong impetus nationally to invest in solar for many good reasons, but the policies haven't been designed to incorporate equity issues. And so while low-income customers invest in renewable energy, they don't have access to the, dis the direct benefits of distributed solar. And in fact, these policies are regressive. You, you have low-income customers paying for higher-income customers to have solar on their roof. And we, we need to correct those policies going forward and looking looking backwards at how much that investment is. So low-income customers have invested. They've invested for the actual upfront costs, and they continue to pay for higher-income customers' rooftop solar because that solar is being paid for at a net metering rate, and the renewable energy credits, for example, are being paid for at a higher, sometimes at a higher rate. So that that is another aspect of the injustice of lower income solar rooftop investments. Um, and many states are working to rectify that. So great, let's pursue that a little bit. What are some of the promising, most promising policies that you've seen coming out of the states that could address some of these distributional problems? Yes, there's been a lot of progress and a lot of movement. And, and in fact, um, in Colorado, um, we have been on the forefront of some of these efforts. California has also been a leader in many other states, Massachusetts, um, New York, 
where there's been an effort to address the equity issues. Um, some of the policies, for example, one of the most important ones is community solar gardens, where if a home, um, if for example a household doesn't own a home, they're renters, or they're they're in a multi-family housing situation, or their roof is not ideally oriented towards the sun, or it's not um, a very strong roof or something, then um, we have policies. The, the community solar garden policy addressed that by allowing people to have sort of a, a virtual net metering situation and own a solar panel in a larger generation facility. That is one of the important movements that's been the policy directions that's been taken to address the solar um, solar rooftop equity issues. In Colorado, we had a, another way to address the policy of sorry address the problem of low income solar is to have set asides for low income households. So if there's a, a a bucket of money going towards rebates for distributed solar, you then allocate a certain percentage of that to low-income solar. And, um, you know, you want to measure progress and you want to measure that that is proportional, to, if you'd like. One of the ways is to look at the proportionality of the low-income investment and then um, how much they've invested in renewable energy and make sure that that is at a minimum returned to low-income customers. That sounds like a pretty complicated calculus. Is there confidence that we can net that out correctly, that we can balance the investment of particular low-income households against the rebate that they receive? Um, no, it's a very difficult problem, um, although you can use rough estimates. And the rough estimates are looking at um, basically the amount that's been paid in for low-income rebates um, and so over time by low-income customers and you have to do estimates on the amount of low-income customers and the amount that they've paid in but we have you know good good estimates for those and then you calculate um, how much needs to be sort of retroactively you know compensated for on a going forward basis Additional policies that are promising going forward are looking at program design that is very consumer protection oriented. It's difficult to design programs where that extra rebate amount that is allocated and directed towards low income customers um, actually ends up reducing the bill of the low income customer. You want that to be a bill reduction and you don't want that to go towards um, the solar developer. So you have to have solar developers that are interested in serving the low-income market, but you don't want it to be extra profitable for them compared to a moderate or high income. So consumer protection policies need to be very well designed. Um, another interesting development in the area of policy that's based on experience and wisdom that's beneficial for low-income customers is um, is allocating the money away from temporary bill assistance towards an investment in ownership and generation and allowing ownership. And there are many economic benefits associated with ownership, and we can talk about that, but when you take the money and allocate it towards more permanent 
solar generation, there are also tremendous societal benefits. Then you have the combination of the solar rebate that benefits low-income customers more, and you also have tremendous societal benefits associated with that as well. So let me play devil's advocate for a minute in a way that I think may allow us to talk about some of the ownership benefits and societal benefits that you just mentioned. So there are different ways of achieving increased solar generation on any given system. We can have large utility scale uh, projects, and we could also have uh, distribution side customer projects. And the Brattle Group did a report in 2015 that found that the cost of installing um, and actually the cost per unit of electricity generated is significantly in some cases lower for those large utility scale solar installations than for the small scale distributed installations like rooftop solar panels, like community solar gardens. So. Why isn't the best way to reduce the bills of low-income customers to install and fund lots of big utility-scale solar generation and then use some of the cost savings from that to offset their bills as opposed to creating these smaller-scale, more expensive installations? So a couple of things that are important there, um, and again, with an emphasis on the equity aspect of it. So many states have very explicit policies to encourage distributed generation. Um, There are many initiatives in the area of making sure that energy policy um, encourages distributed resources. The equity question there is, while no one disputes that there are significant economies of scale to investing in renewable energy that is larger scale and wind costs less than solar. But if you're going to have distributed resource policies, then it certainly seems that you would not want those policies to be dis- to be discriminatory. You want the policies to be equitable. And um, if you have... You want policies for distributed resources that bring distributed resources into formerly underserved neighborhoods. We already have issues with low-income neighborhoods, underserved neighborhoods, socioeconomically less powerful areas receiving um, distributionally um, larger impacts from environmental pollution. And um, so this is a way for environmental policy and energy policy to address those problems. So whatever the benefits, the additional benefits are of having distributed generation, and the states have obviously taken those into account, we hope, in enacting their policies supporting distributed generation, we want to make sure that those benefits, if they're localized, are distributed in an equitable way. Yes. And, and, and I'll just, to go on to, on to that point for another minute, is, you know, there's, we talk about the difference between indirect and direct benefits of environmental energy and, and, and um, renewable energy investments. And clearly, if you have cleaner air, cleaner waters, uh, and um, less pollution in the land, there are all kinds of what we call indirect benefits that everyone benefits from equitably. But it's really when you get into the the localized distributed generation where you have to take more of an equity focus and really be aware of 
avoiding regressive policies. Now, one more possible challenge to the success of these programs is that many community solar programs, as you've mentioned, including those in Colorado, rely on, on what you call virtual net metering policies, so allowing those net metering credits to offset uh, load across multiple retail accounts. Um, and in many states around the country, net metering programs are coming up for reconsideration, uh, qualification, um, and, and the argument there being that these programs which have effectively allowed customers to earn the retail rates for their own uh, solar generation, they net that against their total bill, are actually providing perhaps too much compensation. So if, if states are rethinking these policies, if we're going to scale back even slightly some of the compensation from net metering programs, is that going to hurt, affect the effectiveness of these programs as a source of revenue for low-income customers? I absolutely. When you reduce the amount bill credit, essentially, um, then that reduces the benefit for low-income customers. And so what is happening at the state and federal level, generally, is commissions, executive agencies are taking equity considerations into account when they're looking at reduction to net metering rates. And it, um, it, it has to be done. Yes, you basically have to just design the program and the policy to overcome that barrier. So you either reduce the rate but allocate special programs for a low income. Um, You can, depending on the design of the programs in the state, you can pay more for the renewable energy credit or, or you just have, you know, you just have special programs for low income and allocate the money accordingly. Uh, I think an, anal- an analogy is really reducing the amount of fossil fuels that are used on the system. You have areas that are negatively impacted by that. Um, the term of this used frequently now is transitional communities. Well, we want to design policies that are fair and that address those communities and do what we can to assist with the transition. In the same way, if we want to reduce net metering rates, we need to at the same time look at all of the impacts and look at um, how that is going to impact investment for low-income and underserved communities in in distributed solar. Another thing that's a little bit separate from net metering, but it's it's very closely tied to that is, um, for example, in Colorado, we've recently had um, responses to competitive bidding, uh, competitive solicitations, and the results for large-scale solar, large-scale renewable energy, um, for example, large-scale solar combined with storage, some of those um, bids are coming in competitive with fossil fuel generation. So then when you look at that, then policymakers want to design um, future-looking policies where there isn't as much support for renewable energy um, and renewable energy investment or renewable energy standards and renewable energy portfolios. But again, they also need to take into account the equity aspects of that. So you want both direct and indirect benefits to go towards low-income customers.
Well, we're almost at the end of our time. Is there anything additional that you would like to add? Yes, I'd like to talk for a moment about the societal benefits of, um, of equitable policies in distributed energy. Um, I'll just use an analogy. So it's very important that, we, that when we look at infrastructure investments, that infrastructure investments be made thoughtfully and be made with justice in mind. And so right now there's a lot of, look, there's a lot of um, analysis and discussion about um, electric vehicles, infrastructure investment. And so you want that infrastructure investment to go into underserved communities. You want it to go into rural areas. You want it to go into neighborhoods where you're not going to leave areas behind for technology that's coming. And so that's an example of how it's extremely important to have a, a, to make consciousness, conscious decisions while you're making these important policy um, choices. So um, society benefits when everyone comes along and you don't leave whole groups or whole neighborhoods or whole areas of a state behind. Um, so that's the main point. It's just that, you know, when you have um, people that, you know, there's a lot of research that um, not being able to pay an energy bill is one of the main reasons people go to payday lenders. Um, not being able to pay an energy bill it has, uh, is the reason that ho families leave home. So it has a huge impact on children and homelessness. When we can address these issues um, and all the benefits through wise distributed solar investments that are equitable, everyone benefits. Well, Vicki, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I appreciate you sharing the insights from your work. You're welcome. It's, it's a very exciting area to be in right now where there's a lot of policy development and a lot of um, consideration of these issues. So thank you so much for the opportunity. I appreciate it.